Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. So it's been said on this show that one key factor to international competitiveness is automation. While labor rates vary widely across the world, automation helps to level the playing field. My guest today is Michael McHale, CEO of Production Systems Automation, otherwise known as PSA. Michael graduated from Drexel University with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Just to put our upcoming conversation into context, it's helpful to know that PSA is a privately owned engineering and custom manufacturing firm founded in 1985 with three locations in Pennsylvania. They are experienced as a turnkey systems integrator, providing solutions for capital projects, including, but not limited to, flexible robotic solutions, custom automated machinery, drives and controls, and custom PLC projects. They also offer a line of standard products developed for specific industries, including our own industry. They are a robotic systems integrator at heart, representing leading global robotic OEMs. I say this not to endorse or promote a particular company, but rather to put my guests' comments into context. So without any further ado, I'm pleased to welcome Michael McHale to our show. Hey, Michael. Welcome to hey, Reliability Matters. How you Mike? I'm well. I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. My eye is still um, like a Halloween costume, but what right. can we do, right? If I makes, smile, makes, if I just smile the whole time, you don't really see it. So no, it makes you look tough. I like it. You know, you should see the other guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you being here, uh, Michael. Uh, I, I remember a time in the not too distant past when the term automation was kind of the devil in the details. People heard the factory's going to automate and, and everyone was afraid they were going to lose their jobs. We were all at one point going to lose our jobs due to automation. It was, it was the, 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 the devil. And all these years later, we have indeed, many of us, lost our jobs, but not due to automation. We've lost our jobs due to the fact that other countries are, are you know, paying people you know, uh, pennies an hour, not, not literally, but to make the point. Um, so we have seen a job exodus for certain specific types of jobs. Um, but we're going to talk about how much automation has impacted the job market because you have a very interesting anecdote I want to hear in just a little bit. But uh, the point is um, it didn't really happen. The, the, the automation of factories and processes um, – it has not really led to a net job reduction. It may have shifted the dominoes a little bit, but not a, not a, a net uh, loss. And before we kind of dive into our conversation, I just want to uh, replay just a short clip from a prior guest, um, and that was uh, Patrick Stimpert from uh, Matrix Group, who uh, Patrick is the uh, manufacturing director for a contract manufacturer. And they're in West, Western Pennsylvania and, you know, not the heart of cheap labor in Western Pennsylvania. And yeah. uh, as you know, cause you are in Pennsylvania. So, um, but he had a very interesting take on competitiveness as it has to do with automation. So uh, bear with me one second. Let's, uh, let's share that clip with uh, you and our audience. So really the, the difference that, uh, you know, everybody talks about labor and, Quite honestly, in the contract manufacturer, if labor is your offset, then you have way too many manual processes and processes that are associated with any one customer or any one build. Um, and so it really becomes down to how, how you can support um, rapid change. And then with that rapid change, the less human activity, the better it is. Um, that, that you can pivot quicker, you can pivot quicker and take on new assemblies and all the rest of that. So if labor is the only discussion and then there's really you're doing something wrong as a contract manufacturer in the United States because it shouldn't not be so much labor driven um, because the automation is not that expensive. In the, in, especially if 
you've tried to hire people in the last couple of years, and if you think that um, automation is expensive, just keep changing the bottom 20% out in your organization, and I'll tell you how expensive that is, especially people that may not be as conscious about quality as you'd like them to be. Agree? Disagree? No, absolutely. I think, um, you know, uh, automation as as we've um, progressed in technology has gotten more and more flexible. You know, so in, in the contract manufacturing space, it's all about flexibility, uh, whether that's circuit boards, filling boxes, making widgets and gadgets, it's about flexibility. How can I change for a new customer? How do I put in a base process that I can use over and over and over again for different types of things? As technologies advanced, collaborative robotics, um, additional programming skills, we can now do that where we probably couldn't do that you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, things are getting smaller, faster, and uh, honestly, you know, even less expensive. So I do agree with Patrick. Um, I don't think you should be defined just by your labor. You should be defined by the investment into R&D, into your business, as well as, as the automation. Yeah, I, I totally agree. As this show concentrates on um, circuit assemblies, reliability mm -hmm. of circuit assemblies, I, I, can you provide some examples of some of the uh, automation systems that you've worked on for this space? I know uh, SMT is, uh, I think, a, a newer endeavor uh, for uh, PSA, um, but there's so much uh, crossover between work yes. you've done in in uh, segment A and and segment B and C, et cetera. So uh, what types of things have you worked on uh, for the uh, EMS space, basically? Yeah, I think we've done a lot of work in the um, manufacturing or installation of boards after um, assembly, um, putting plugs together, a lot of the labor-intensive, slower processes uh, obviously, you can go to customer, you know, to, to companies like Hanwha to be able to to spit out lots of uh, lots of boards at a time, but it's some of the odd component sized parts uh, that we've had uh, pretty good luck doing, as well as the assembly packaging after the fact. Uh, so we've done uh, quite a bit of work in the cell phone space, in different avenues, um, from handling some raw materials uh, and to packaging. Uh, you know, we're finding more and more of those opportunities. Yeah, excellent. So um, how many of your products are built custom to address a very specific need versus um, any standard catalog? I know there is some catalog stuff. I have a feeling it's rather yeah. new, like bright and shiny new still. Um, yeah. But uh, no, no scratches on the doors yet, so that new. Uh, tell me about kind of the ratio of custom projects and, and – um, and catalog type off the shelf projects and yeah, where you're planning yeah, on going you, with that. Yeah. When you look at the overall uh, core of, of PSA, we are 95% custom projects. Um, whether that's large robot systems, smaller robot systems, uh, even the custom equipment. Uh, we kind of, uh, we, we run the gamut. We do have some, some standard products that we sell into the, the, the plastic bottle industry uh, bed bug ovens, believe it or not, to the to the VA uh, and a couple other standard products, but that's a very small portion of our business. So almost everything we do is custom engineered, custom designed, and fabricated by what, PSA. What type of ovens? Believe it or not, bed bug ovens. That's what I thought you said. I didn't want to repeat it because yes. I thought I could have got it wrong. Yes. Um, yeah, so we, we, is we this sell to quite a few. Get rid of bed bugs from sheets and things like that. Is that what? Yeah, sheets and um, uh, bags, suitcases, things that. Uh, you know, attendees of, uh, of, of the VA hospitals may bring in. We've okay. also sold, sold larger um, to the GSA uh, to be able to put couches, file folders. Um, believe it or not, bed bugs are a problem in a lot of storage facilities sure. uh, for paper. So we've done, we've done quite a bit of those as well. I can only imagine the R&D that had to go behind the scenes at your facility to, yeah, right. you know, did you have to then put all your furniture in the ovens too? You know, when you were done. Yeah, I, I don't think your uh, I don't think your listeners really want to. <laughs> too much information, right? To be honest right, Mike. Yeah, there's there's certain things left to the imagination. Yeah, yeah, maybe they're best uh, staying there. Uh, when someone looks at when I think uh, of 
automation. I see a, a thing we do in our fact, you know, I own and operate a factory. Uh, we build equipment and there are some jobs that are pretty tedious that we just have to do. And clearly I have the option of hiring PSA or a similar type of company to, to come in and automate that process. But my first thought, it may not be valid, but my first thought is no way. That's going to, I'm not going to spend a million dollars to save a, you know, hundred dollar operation. I'm just not going to do it. And it makes sense. And, but I have a feeling given the fact that your company has been around so long, your company's growing other and automation is this huge thing right now, you know, uh, everywhere. I have a feeling my, my, um, first impression is probably obsolete or just incorrect in general. So is there a typical ROI on a, um, investment in automation and what would that typical ROI be? Yeah, we're, we are typically under two and a half years. Um, we do do projects that have three month ROIs. Um, we do have uh, projects that we do are five-year ROIs, but a lot of those five-year ROIs are um, very difficult jobs, difficult environments uh, that may be driven more by insurance or OSHA claims or just injuries or, or you know, a bad work environment than it is about ROIs. So a lot of companies do make very valuable decisions for their employees by automating things that are just brutal uh, work environments, picking up 50-pound bags, 50-pound boxes, uh, handling forge forge pressings out of a forge, um, you know, things that are big, dirty, uh, and difficult. Uh, but on a typical typical project, like something for your manufacturing floor, I'm going to tell you, you're probably between a year and two and a half years. And wow. we really won't price or or even we'll, we'll work with you as to what that that installation needs to be to hit a, an ROI. So we do we have those conversations with our customers all the time. And is that a common misconception that it's, do people come to you yeah. like, you know, afraid think, to see the quote or? Yeah, I think um, some customers are probably more afraid to tell you where they need to be than they are about what the savings will be. Um, you know, so the more open the customer is about, okay, I have X dollar, you know, this employee cost me $20. I do a three shifts a day. My ROI at that point's $180,000. Being able to develop a system that fits your return on investment is what I think one of our skill sets are. Yeah. But the, the customer has to be open and honest about what that ROI is. You know, just don't, you know, we can't, we don't like customers that say, hey, we need to automate this and we come up with this brilliant system. The problem is you're right. It's a million dollars and it saves a hundred. Um, that's not the right application. Um, right. Most, a lot of times we find customers will call us in to look at a particular application and we start walking through your facility and we find 20 other better applications for automation than the thing you called us about. Because we have an inherent, you know, our sales team has an inherent ability to be able to find better opportunities for a return on investment by what sure. you do in your factory. Uh, so you know, we, we do do automation assessments for companies where we come in and actually put down 20, 20 30, 40, 100 items that we feel are best for automation with a, a budget, a, a rough order of magnitude and an ROI, um, hmm. that we like to collaborate with. So that's not unheard of in our industry. And that's a good segue to my next question. Uh, when we, when we receive a phone call from a potential customer, they have a list of questions for us. And quite yeah. frequently in order for us to answer those questions, we have a list of questions for them, right? So we can make right. sure we're, we're dancing with the right partner, right? Uh, we don't want to waste their time, our time, and we want to provide value. I'm sure the same it goes for your company. So if I were to call you or anyone, if anyone were to contact you, uh, you mentioned you do an um, automation assessment. What are the general types of questions you will ask a customer um, that will ensure that your response will be uh, responsive and, and accurate and helpful to their request? Yeah, I think there's there's two sides to that question, Mike. Um, the first side is we have customers that come to us with a scope of work, and that's a that's a different scenario because that customer has already put time into writing up what their requirements are for that project. Uh, they've probably funded a project or had a budget, uh, so that's we put that in one basket. And then the other basket is, hey, we think we have this thing we want to automate. We'll ask a couple questions about labor rates, how many how many shifts, kind of get a ballpark. But 
honestly, then it takes a visit. It takes a visit to see exactly what the application is, what we're looking at, and what that ROI will be. Um, and, and within a half hour, an hour of that visit, we can usually tell what if, if that's a viable application uh, for us to be able to help you with. Very good. And one of the common misconceptions with factory automation, demystify it or, or, or uh, you know, myth bust that. I'm sure people come with their own, their own uh, particular conceptions. Yeah, I think the biggest misconception about automation is everyone thinks the robots are coming to uh, take their jobs, and that's really not the case. You know, and you look at the misconceptions about, okay, what can automation do for my factory versus the misconception of what is automation going to do to my job looking at it as an individual. You know, there's some reports, you know, uh, that automation will eliminate 75 million jobs over the next 20 years. But we're going to be adding $133 million jobs, or $133 million other jobs doing other things that that automation is producing. Programmers, maintenance, uh, whatever it may be, to support those industries or to move those jobs into other value adds for those for those uh, manufacturers. So with onshoring, you know, we're going to see, uh, I think, more jobs generated by automation. There's more things to fix. There's more things to evaluate. Um, I, I think it's going to drive a higher paying wage long term. Uh, you're the king of segues today. This is perfect. I was going to ask you this later, but this is a perfect time. Uh, you, in an interview that I watched when I was doing my research before talking to you, um, you were on a, another show and you talked about the a report from the uh, U.S. Uh, Census Bureau um, about a classification of employee that, that finally no longer exists. Share that. I know it's, it's not necessarily totally responsive uh, to this, but I think it's a great anecdote and it kind of makes a, a greater point. If you w wouldn't mind sharing that with me. Yeah, so in the 1950 census, there was one profession listed that is not in the census as of 2021, and that was elevator operator. And you could really look at that as that one particular job was eliminated due to automation. So in that 75-year history, that's one job in 75 years. So we're either not doing very good technology-wise or advancing our the human race, or we're generating jobs in other spaces. And when you look at that elimination of an elevator operator, you now produced more elevator installers, technicians, service people to handle all that technology sure. on top of the engineering behind the control systems. So you, you took a, you took a, uh, probably a, not, not a very skilled or a very, uh, technical job and made tremendous amounts of additionally higher value jobs out of that. Yeah. Um, and as you've said before, um, on, in other venues, um, robots don't make robots, right? Correct. So, yep. uh, your, your factory is not 100% filled with robots, except maybe what's going out to, to your customers. It's, it's filled with people, smart people, imaginative people, creative people that are using their hands and their brains and other tools to create something, right? So um, at the end of the day, I can't imagine, you know, the doomsday scenario of, you know, automation is going to lead to all of us, you know, <laughs> serving robots rather than, than the other way around. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Clearly, it, we're not yeah. even headed that direction, probably quite the opposite. I think there's yes. enough data out there to suggest that. We hear a lot about not just IoT, but industrial Internet of Things, IIoT, um, platforms like Industry uh, 4.0, Hermes, whatever. You know, they, every industry has their own stamp that they, uh, that they put on it. How have these uh, initiatives influenced factory automation? And more specifically, has the push for IIoT come down into PSA world? I think it has a little bit. I think we're still years away from full connectivity. You know, the the, the whole idea of IIoT, IIoT um, is about collecting and categorizing and sharing data. Um, if you have old systems in your facility, you can't do that. Uh, so, so it's newer facilities uh, from the ground up that can actually 
kind of fall into that category. I think we are decades away from fully connected plants. You know, and with that, with that conversation, you also get into that the ability of, of security of those facilities. How much interlocking of equipment do you do? Cybersecurity, uh, bulletproofing your manufacturing floor. In some ways, we have some customers that were decoupling equipment because there are issues with network security, network switch security that can bring down a portion of a facility inadvertently with a with a software patch. Uh, so we we have actually been we were in a facility, a very large uh, paper mill that did a pat did a uh, software patch to a network switch and brought down an entire paper mill. Um, and that's never a good thing. So that, that hmm. IOT is starting to become segregated. Yeah, we we build equipment uh, for the electronic assembly industry, and it is um, networkable, and mm-hmm. you know it has Wi-Fi enabled, et cetera, Ethernet ports, whatever they want. And when we ship to sensitive locations, we have to disable, we have to strip yes. uh, Windows in this case of all of its drivers. Doesn't mean someone yes. can't put them back in, but we have to ship it sterile, uh, and we physically have to put locks. There's a little uh, Ethernet port and USB port locks that one can put in. It takes a little device to remove it. We have to physically block access to the USB ports, and yep. and that's you know, and that's in a world of every. But everyone wants their machine connected so that it can talk to the next machine and put reports up in the air. It's like, yeah, but you can't. I, you know, we you know? we we also. You know, part of this technology would be to be able to troubleshoot remotely. And I'm sure, you know, you have this problem. If yep. you, you have a piece of equipment out in the field and it needs to be serviced or, or where it's not working for some reason, we would like to dial into that, into that piece of equipment and be able to fix it or troubleshoot remotely without having to send a, ter- a service tech out. Well, that's not nearly, nearly none of our customers allow that because of network security. Sure. Uh, so we have very limited access. Uh, the one thing that we are adding, we are adding virtual reality to our systems. So we're actually, we have a, we have a PSA app and then we put videos um, and troubleshooting manuals into video right on an, a tablet. Uh, so you can access it right at the machine to help with, um, to help with troubleshooting. And we use that on our SMT products for Matrix and Marksman. And it helps with installation, troubleshooting. And we're finding that to be very valuable because the days of having a manual open up a manual, see how something works. Those days are kind of gone. People (laughs) want to watch a YouTube video. So we're converting um, all of our written manuals and documentation into um, visual aids for troubleshooting. That also helps us with language barriers. So we can, we can, we can then provide our manuals in Spanish and other languages. It it really helps us a lot. Well, it's funny. One of the most, most sophisticated computers, most powerful computers someone would ever own is you know what one of these right yep. and yep. they don't come with manuals i have yep. two grandkids 10 and 7 and for years yep. they could they can unlock my phone they're little hacks right they can unlock my phone uh, they they know where to swipe they know where to you know go to youtube to watch the latest version of uh, lego ninjago or what you know whatever it was and uh, ninjago and um i mean they it's just intuitive so you're right. I mean, it's it's no one's looking at no one's looking at paper manuals anymore. It's all electronic. No. Yeah, that's yeah, a good we, idea. We've we found a lot of value in uh, augmented reality. You know, and I this will drive into headsets um, for actually trying to lay out equipment in factories, walking through to understand access points in the factory. I, I think there's more of IoT in that space, uh, in this yeah. planning space and virtualization space, than there necessarily is in connectivity outside of the plant environment. Yeah, that, yeah, I agree. So your company operates three different divisions, including uh, robotics uh, and automation, uh, DOD, Department of Defense work, and SMT. SMT being kind of the newest um, uh, extension to your, to your company. I assume that while your DOD division makes, you know, hybrid projectiles and, and projectiles and, and uh, UAVs, there's a little crossover between a hybrid projectile and a piece of surface mount equipment, but there, but there probably is a lot of other crossover uh, from your other divisions. And so how much technology overlap is there uh, between your three major operating divisions? 
and, and the other division? You know, how much crossover between the three divisions, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. There's actually more to you would think. Um, you know, we do have uh, 60 engineers and fabricators. So we have our own our, a full, full line of machine shop, all of our own fabrication ability. So we do hardware design, software design, robot programming, mechanical design, electrical design, whatever it may be for our systems. We are a fully in-house shop. So what that allows us to do is now we have all of that background information. So we have all the staff. If you need a heart, if you need a board designed, we have a hardware designer. If you need something programmed, we have four programmers. Uh, fabrication, you know, we fabricate everything, everything that we produce. So the only thing that we do outside is paint and coatings. So that's the value add that PSA brings to like our new division of SMT. We can be faster to market, higher quality, and more cost competitive because we control all our costs. Uh, so that really helps. So yeah, when you think about the crossover, yeah, SMT is there. It's a little outside of our norm, but it's really not because our core business is manufacturing and engineering. Uh, what is products in the SMT space? Manufacturing and engineering. And that's what we provide. Let's talk about products in the SMT space for a moment. You guys came up with a um, stencil printer. And yes. You know, this is not a commercial show, as, as you know, and so we're not hyping yeah. a, a particular stencil printer. But I am um, fascinated with the concept of, so you guys are a custom automation shop. So you're clever people, very MacGyvery, right? Mm -hmm. and, and someone at your company goes, hey, let's, let's jump into the uh, crowded pool and build a stencil mm -hmm. printer that a thousand other, and I say that. Uh, with a little bit of hyperbole, but you know, a thousand other mm -hmm. companies make half of those companies are in Asia that sell it for you know six cents, uh, and and um, but something in your uh, mindset said we could do it better, and I imagine you just didn't do an also ran because there's no money in that, right? You'd just be competing with all the other people trying to you know hawk their goods. So from with the mindset of a of a of a custom machine manufacturer, designer. What made you get into a off-the-shelf um, product or catalog-type product, I should, I should call it? And um, what, how did you go about looking at what was available and what was missing from that portfolio and address those missing items to come up with a, you know, what I would assume you would consider a better mousetrap? Yeah, you know, it's a this this one's a funny story. Uh, so we never intended on coming out with a manual printer. Um, we were at in Minnesota at the SMT show last year, and we were sitting with a couple of our reps or one of our reps at lunch, and the reps like, we really need this in the marketplace, and it needs to do this. So so myself and Charlie Monkavich, who's who's really heading up our SMT space, he's been in that world for for over twenty years. We were like, you know what, we can do this. We can add vision. We can add higher accuracy into a system that's more cost effective because we are actually manufacturing it and bringing it to market. Uh, so that's how, uh, that's how our, our manual um, printer came about. We didn't dream up the idea. Our rep groups that, that rep, that rep our, our uh, tooling actually came to us with the opportunity to say, hey, Mike, we need this in the space. And that's what we're doing with uh, in the SMT space. We're having our reps and customers come to us and say, hey, Mike, you know, we would really like this in the space. Is this something you can do? So we're bringing that custom automation, uh, custom manufacturing, um, you know, know-how into a space that might be lacking it, lacking in that very custom world. So this was not dreamed up by, by us. This was actually brought to us as an opportunity. And that's how we see us going forward. We're going to keep introducing products, but those products are going to be kind of demanded by the, by the, uh, by the customer base to say, Hey, we're missing this. You know, maybe it's not, this is kind of perfect for what we do, but if you did this to it, it would be better. Uh, that's what right. we're trying to do. Right. It's not that they're missing a product to sell on their line card. C correct. They could find that, that somewhere. Right. But yes. they're, they're missing the product. The products correct. that are available are missing something that yeah, th had this they had it, kinda, they could sell more. Yeah, so this is, you know, what we're trying to do is offer um, a better mousetrap. You know, it's right. it's something that's got a higher end vision, that's got higher end accuracy to help the manufacturers produce more products at a better price. That's the goal. So if we're, okay. we're not, at, if we're not value adding, we're not going to be interested in making that product. Yeah. 
as a manufacturer, we don't, our companies are, are completely opposite in terms of we know our wheelhouse, we know what's not in our wheelhouse. And it took a greater part of 30 years to figure that out. You guys have been in business longer than we have. We started in 92. I think you started in 85. Is that, is that? Yeah, the, the core businesses uh, all started in 85. Yeah. So we've all been around the block a few times, and it, it took a lot of years to realize this. If someone came to us and said, look, we want one of your machines, but we need it three inches wider. Hmm? That'd be like going to Ford and say, look, I, I really like your your Ford Escort, but I want it three inches wider. Can you make me one? And they go, sure, you know, $20 million, <laughs> new tooling, whatever. Um, we, It's hard for us to do custom work, even though we yeah. did it many times. I don't think we ever made money on it. Um, and you live in that world. You, yes. you obviously turn a profit, you're successful in a custom world. Um, I really like the uh, catalog type world, meaning we build one product over and over and over and over again. And it yes. changes over the years, um, but we build one product over and over and over again, get really good at it. Uh, the, is was part of the decision, other than just to be responsive to you know a, a suggestion, was part of the decision to go into a standard product, repeatable standard product, um, to experience that side of the business, to be able to um, really drive the cost down, profit up, you know, by being able to repetitively build something over and over and over again. And you put the engineering in once, and and then it's just all manufacturing at that point. Was that part of the uh, decision to to have part of the business as a as a standard product business? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have uh, a enormous amount of manufacturing ability uh, with all the equipment that we own. So, you know, and when you own equipment, the idea is to keep your equipment running. Right. The more, the more time your mills run, the more time your water jets run, the more time you're, you're welding, um, the better off the efficiency is in the company. So, you know, when we own all those asset, assets, um, uptime of those assets is where, where the value's at. So, yeah, you know, just like our just like our other uh, standard products for hot fill machines or bed bug ovens, this is kind of the same philosophy. We can make products, you know, once we get past the initial engineering and the initial prototyping, making a product for us is easy. So if you call up and say, hey, Mike, the, the marksman's great, but uh, I need, I have this one application, it needs to be four inches wider. Well, that's a couple hours with right. uh, with the SolidWorks model, and then we go out and make See, it. You make money that, on that. I lose money on that. So yeah, you do that you know, stuff. Yeah, so I, I think the value is if you're manufacturing every component you make, there's value in it. If you're if you're having to sub subcontract out right. components, wiring, panel builds, yeah, that you're gonna have a, you're gonna struggle with that because the profit is being made by all your vendor by all your subcontractors. That's right. We, we're our own subcontractor. Right. Too many hands in the pot there. Um, Correct. Yeah. So and that's why we're able to go to market faster. Um, if somebody calls us up and says, "Hey, Mike, uh, we got a little problem. This." particular things not quite right well we just change it on the new ones and make a new part and send it to you yeah and you can have that done in an hour that also helps us on the r&d side so when charlie dreams up something and wants to try something we have you know 10 10 3d printers and 28 mills there's always a mill open there's always a programmer open you go over there and you spit out a part in an hour and you can try that new part Uh, that helps us uh quite a bit at this very moment, I can just hear the envy coming out from our audience to be able to have that kind of <laughs> that kind of yeah. um, uh, technology at your disposal. Uh, in a prior interview, you talked about uh, augmented reality AR, which we we just talked about goggles, mm-hmm. uh, walking through the plant, uh, training on machines. So I can see that. You also talk about AI, artificial intelligence, being you know part of the automation process. Uh, can you provide some examples of AI? Um, technologies embedded into your uh, automation uh, systems. Yeah, I, I think the use of AI is uh, maybe a little overdone. Uh, when we talk about AI, it's more about kind of a uh, deep learning uh, for, say, vision systems. We're working with a very advanced vision system uh, for a client of ours. And with that, we're learning that new technology and it's learning. But yet, we call it AI, but it's not really AI. This goes back to the robots taking our jobs. There's a programmer that needs to program 
for hundreds of hours of that system and continually teaching it over and over and over and over again. So this is producing, you know, that, that goes back to the same, the same concept. We didn't eliminate a job. We might've eliminated a job on the manufacturing floor, but we created a job in the engineering office. Right. Um, so AI, I think is a, is a very big word that you're not seeing a lot of AI in the world in a lot of practical applications. At this yeah. Point. I, I, I always, I'm glad you said that because I always crack up at when, when I see commercials for consumer products and they talk about AI built in, it's like Crest toothpaste with AI, like, you know, it, obviously that's not a real example, but it, it might as well be because I don't even think yeah. they know what AI means. Right. And yeah. everything is yeah. AI now. It's like in the seventies, everything was turbo <laughs> and yeah. ultra, and now it's all AI and and I'm there is obviously real AI out there, uh, but it is a kind of a placeholder for something high tech, something that makes decisions. But I, not all of them are AI. But but in but in your world, I can I can definitely see you know true AI um, as part of the you know the, the software decision making systems, learning things like that. Um, so I was born in 1960, which meant. I came of driving age in 1975, 1976, uh, and my first car was a 67 Mustang that I bought for $900 off a used car lot. In 19, you know, it was a nine-year-old car. It wasn't a classic by any means. And I, rem I, I took four years of auto shop in high school, so I was a bit of a motorhead. And I remember very well cars of that era, of the 70s and 80s in particular. And they were... Cool car. I mean, muscle cars, they look great, but much better than at the time the um, Asian imports, uh, Japanese imports. Uh, but they were terrible cars in terms of build quality, reliability, fit and finish. It, I mean, awful, awful. We made terrible cars back then. And back then, much of the processes were not as automated as they are today. You know, they had, they had certain robot welding things, you know, back many years ago. But it was still, humans were largely still building cars uh, and, and on the assembly lines. Today, the whole process is highly, highly automated. I mean, there are still people there, but, but the major processes are highly automated. The seam lines between trunks and you know, quarter panels, for example, are super tight now uh, and, and even. The, a, a typical American-built car will easily go 130, 140,000 miles with, relatively speaking, very little trouble, relatively speaking. Um, and I'm thinking this has as much to do, maybe more to do with the increase in automation than just a commitment to quality. I, I have a feeling the increase in automation produced the quality, which we then say we have a commitment to. Um, do you see the decision to automate a factory go beyond the obvious labor savings and um, really part of the ROI is an increase in reliability, a decrease in um, returns and, and trouble and things like that. Does that question make sense? Uh, how much of, the, yeah, how, how much I, of it is, is driven by a desire for increased quality and consistency versus just labor savings? I think it's a very large part of the equation. You know, if you're a long-term investor in your business, the automation helps you change your product over time. Can I make my product, you know, you go back to the car reference. You know, if you have humans that have to put together fenders, you need to leave a lot of space and there's a lot of opportunity to, to make changes and to slide those fenders around. But if you manufacture, if you engineer the car for automation, you can make all those things, you know, tighter and more accurate, increasing, you know, quality. I think that, that stands true for any automation. As that automation is in place, your products are going to get better, more repeatable, and you're going to have, you know, like you said, less returns. You know, the, the value of that ROI portion of your decision has to be made. If you're a long-term investor in your business, just not the ROI of the people. It's also the ROI of the returns, customer satisfaction, and then how can I change that product to be better, cheaper, faster in the automation process? And, you know, and thinking part of that as you were designing the system helps a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine there are a number of justifications to invest 
in um, automation, as we talked about labor quality, um, maybe uh, a safer work environment. Maybe there's something mm-hmm. that tends to chop hands off. So you know, yep. now it doesn't chop of hands off. It's always good uh, to have your, your team handy. Um, how has the unprecedented labor shortage that we're seeing right now landed on your business? Have you seen people say, we never really in- thought we'd invest in automation, but we can't hire people. It's so difficult to hire people. Are people using automation as a mitigation strategy for um, not being able to otherwise hire people to do that job? Oh, of course. I mean, it, you know, like, like I think that's a... That's a duh know, thing, that's right? Pretty, that's, pretty, that's pretty much understood in the sense that even if you can find people to do the, 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 the work that you need, the cost of that person has gone up significantly which is now allowing us to have a higher return on investment. So you know, there's a lot of industries that we're working in that had no ROI for automation just because labors were, labor, labor costs were 12, 13, $14 an hour. That doesn't exist anymore. So as labor rates start pushing 20, 21, 22, 25, aut- aut- automation makes you know, very much uh, sense for many industries. Uh, so I, th- I think you're gonna see that continue. You know, We don't see inflation going down in the near future. And I don't think wages are not going to go backwards. That never happens. Um, So automation is going to take over more and more. Also, we do have an enormous shortage of workers in the workforce. Um, The only way of making that up is by upvaluing the workers that you do have by supplementing them with with automation and moving them to jobs that are open. Yeah, I I think also, uh, and we have to kind of wrap up because we're very quickly running out of time. But Let's kind of wrap it up with this this statement. You can validate whether the statement is correct or not. One of the advantages, of course, of automation is um, we can replace certain amounts of labor. Now, we all agree the labor generally goes somewhere else in the factory because someone has to run the robots, right? Um, Yes. but, But the tedious labor, which means a person who's hired to put yellow tips on the ends of uh, metal prongs, um, Probably not a lot of internal job satisfaction, probably more turnover in that industry, in, in that segment of the industry, than there would be otherwise. Um, so I can see one of the benefits is it can actually have this counterintuitive um, benefit to employee retention because they're not doing things that are, are, are just no fun to do, frankly. Uh, but the other kind of soft benefit that I can see it's tangible, but I think people think of it as a soft benefit is robots don't file sexual harassment cases or workers' comp cases. Um, robots don't have to quarantine themselves when they've been exposed to COVID. What robots don't, they're not human. And they, they, every day is a good day. You know, they're always in a neutral mood uh, to do the work. Um, when I, you know, I talked about me being kind of a motorhead, it's, it's often long said, never buy an American car that was built on a Friday. Or if, if yes. a car broke down, it's like, oh, this, this is a Friday car. Never buy a Friday car. And worse, never buy a Friday car when it's a three-day weekend, because that's the worst. But that's just, a, you know, obviously a statement of how people have bad days. I, I know robots can break, but generally speaking, they don't have bad days and good days. They're not, they don't have mood swings. More people do. Um, how much of that benefit that's received after someone automates something was actually realized beforehand and part of the decision, or, or and how much of it was like, Michael, holy, holy, whatever, I can't believe we have this extra benefit. I, I didn't even factor that in. It's kind of a jumbled yeah. statement slash question, yeah. but uh, is that just Wait. a an afterthought advantage, or do people actually calculate that in? No, I think, you know, human capital needs to be, uh, you know, part of your business, you know, balance sheet thought process. If you have really miserable jobs and your staff comes in as miserable, that's not producing a great life for them or their family. And it kind of makes you at the factory miserable. But if you can replace a terrible job and be able to move associates to a better job that maybe gives them some mobility upwards, 
uh, that's always better for the morale of the employees and the business overall. You know, satisfaction of a business is is very important. And not satisfaction of the business, but satisfaction of the people inside the business are going to be more productive, less injuries, higher attendance rates. So, you know, remove remove those kind of miserable jobs from your workforce and then move those move those individuals to a better job that that's better for their mental state. And I think the value of that over time is going to drastically increase. Uh, And you're starting to see that with the SEC actually going to make public companies file a lot of HR related information in their quarterly filings. And it's going to push that. And I, you know, satisfaction, rollover, opportunities for growth are going to be measured. um, And and the time is changing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there are a lot of soft benefits to automation beyond the, the well-documented, you know, duh mm-hmm. things, you know. Uh, yes. Uh, cost reductions in certain types of labor for that project. Um, yes. Um, increases in quality, consistency, reliability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then all that soft stuff, like, you know, they, they don't file complaints. They, they, they don't join unions. They don't do things like that. Um, yeah. Not I, that I that's bad, you know, but that's, it's just, you don't have to worry about that stuff when it's automated. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't even think it's a, it, it's even goes that far, Mike. I think it, it's, you know, do you want to work in a freezer that's at zero degrees or minus 10 degrees, right? palletizing boxes all day long in, in a, in a horrible environment where you work for 15 minutes and you have to come out for 15 minutes because it's 15 minutes is all you can handle, uh, just breathing. And no one wants to do those jobs. There's no reason why we shouldn't replace those jobs with automation and let those associates have a more, you know, have a, have a better lifestyle. Yeah, um, for sure. And, you know, and, there's, a, there's a human capital uh, value of that. Yeah. And this comes as a surprise to people who aren't in business, who don't own and operate their own business. And this will not come as a surprise to you. And that most people leave their jobs, not because of money. People leave because of money. But the majority yeah. of the time people leave their jobs, it's because they're not happy at work and dissatisfaction. Yes. Just satisfaction. And yes. if, um, and, and it's almost never money. In fact, I, I, I can't tell you how many times people have left because of money and then they've come back, you know, three months later and you know, they really want their job back because they were happier. It's a quality of quality of work life issue. Um, so if someone is quote unquote displaced by a robot, uh, to coin an, you know, like a seventies Jetsons term or something, you know, displaced by a robot, um, chances are they will land in a different part of the factory doing something that it's not in a freezer, won't get their hands chopped off. Um, yes. You know, they're not throwing bed bugs into ovens, <laughs> things, <laughs> things like that, right? Which yeah. obviously improve your quality of life. My last question, uh, based on all of your significant experience in automation, where do you see the future of factory automation going? Get out your crystal ball. I think it's going to go, it's going to go deeper. I think companies are, as we're re-onshoring manufacturing, automation is going to grow at, you know, a substantial rate. Um, We are behind, behind a lot of other countries, you know, Japan, China, uh, with robots per employee. Uh, So the growth is going to be there. Um, You're seeing double digit growths in the automation space year over year. You're also going to see the growth of automation from the fortune 500s down to the billion dollar companies to the hundred million dollar companies down to the 20 million dollar companies as automation becomes more accessible affordable maybe easier to program and labor issues become harder and harder um yeah i i think your automation everywhere from the grocery store to the gas station to you know, your work-life balance uh is going to just keep increasing I'll tell you where it doesn't make sense. I was on a cruise um, earlier this year, April, and the cruise ship had a robot bartender, right? Yes. And it was a bit of a, you know, it's it's, it's a bit of a shtick, right? It'll make a drink drink for you. But it can't tell you, not that I would ask this question, that's not where I am in life, but they can't tell you the name of the cute girl at the end of the bar, right? It doesn't understand, like, go buy that person a drink. It doesn't listen to your problems. It doesn't act like, it doesn't yeah. tell a joke. It doesn't laugh at your joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't cut you off, which is probably a, one advantage, but um, clearly I don't think uh, robot bartenders are a great idea. I, I want a human bartender, but be out of that. I think you, you need, know, well, aside I, for that. you know, it's, it's human, 
it's human interaction. I don't, you know, robotics, robots and automation is not going to ever stop human interaction. I think the last right. couple of years of COVID and the lockdowns have taught us that human interaction is, is important. And, you know, in a lot of ways, business is getting back to the way it was before, more in-person meetings, the way it should be. You know, you can, sure. you can resolve a lot more problems in person than you can by a team's call. Right. Yeah, totally agree. Well, uh, Michael, Mikhail, thank you so much for uh, being my guest today. CEO, PSA, uh, Production Systems Automation. I appreciate you being here. Um, uh, continued success. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more products for the SMT world, my world, uh, come out of uh, that little dreamhouse factory you have. Uh, one last yes. question. I, I'm famous for asking multiple last questions. You have three manufacturing facilities within Pennsylvania. What's mm. the reason for three versus, this is nothing to do with technology now, but what's the reason for three versus, uh, you know, one big factory? It's just the way Frankly, you grew? people. No, people. it's people. You know, we, we've done a couple of acquisitions, but really it comes down to the people. You know, like, like we talked earlier, robots don't build robots, people do. So amassing the talent levels that we have um, is all about the people and access to colleges and universities and, mm. you know, where, where people want to live. Um, so, you know, that one always comes back to it's, it's all about people. Oh, excellent. Good answer. Uh, for my viewers and listeners, if you'd like to get more information on PSA and uh, reach out to Michael, I'll put some contact information in the show notes. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, uh, simply go to the app and uh, look at the show notes and we'll have some contact information there. If you're watching this on YouTube, look down. It says show more and click that button and you'll be able to access that. Uh, information. Uh, Michael, once again, thanks for being my guest. And for our audience, I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Michael. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. And a special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at Reliability.fm for syndicating this show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send comments and episode suggestions to Mike at MikeConrad.com. Just remember, that's Conrad with a K. And be sure and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and hit the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Once again, thanks for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.